0: We're going Under the Hood with Dr. Sunshine, where we explore topics that are relevant to STEM professionals with intersecting identities. Thank you for listening. Welcome back everyone to episode nine of Under the Hood with Dr. Sunshine. Once again, we're back with another illustrious guest, uh, Dr. Jeremy Feaster. Hi, Jeremy. Hey,
1: Sonny. Dr. Professor Ivy. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, no, it's great to be here with Jeremy and we're gonna dive into his research and philanthropic career in just a few minutes. So first, once again, I wanna welcome you guys to this space for aspiring current or retired STEM students and professionals where we go behind the scenes and talk about our experiences um, and those who are friends and loved ones can, can also come and hear about those behind the scenes experiences as well. And so just to give a brief introduction about Jeremy, Dr. Jeremy T. Feaster is a research staff, scientist and principal investigator in the materials science division at the renowned Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. His research focuses on utilizing advanced manufacturing, 3D printing, and electrochemical reactor design to tackle climate change and energy application challenges, including converting carbon dioxide from air into sustainable chemicals and fuels. And Dr. Feaster earned his PhD and Master of Science degree in chemical engineering from Stanford University in 2018 and 2015, respectively. He also completed his Bachelor of Science degree in Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at Georgia Tech in 2011. Dr. Feaster is a passionate proponent of uplifting communities of color. He started the Jeremy T. Feaster Foundation to amplify a culture of lift as you climb in 2012. A 501c3 nonprofit organization, the Feaster Foundation awards scholarships and provides mentorships to Black and underrepresented students across the nation who are driven to serve their community and help their fellow peers. So with that, welcome, Jeremy.
1: When you say it like that, it sounds sounds very impressive, (laughs) but I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: You're very welcome. I feel honored. And it is very impressive. Um, and to my listeners, uh, this is not happenstance. Uh, Jeremy didn't just become who he is. Jeremy has been a trailblazer since I've known him. And we met in 20, uh, 2009 yep. as undergraduate students at Georgia Tech Um Jeremy was just as generous, just as bright, just as forward-thinking, and he had a visionary attitude from from the very beginning. I would think, oh, I need to be more like Jeremy. (laughs) And then I think, oh, I just don't have the time (laughs) and energy for all of that. (laughs) But um, 10-plus years later, we're circling back. We're both in the Bay Area, and um, it's great to talk to you about your research journey, uh, your journey into philanthropy, and I think the listeners will really benefit from from hearing directly from you and knowing about your experiences. So,
1: yeah, awesome. Sounds great.
0: Yeah, so with that, we'll jump right into uh, the first part of the podcast, which we'll talk about Jeremy's research journey. So, as you guys heard earlier, uh, Jeremy, your current research focus is developing catalysts and reactors for carbon dioxide conversion so in your opinion and in your expertise why is this work important and have you always been interested in studying in this area
1: yeah no i think that's a great question And, and one of the things that i think just for me that is you know, even back from, from 2009, right, when we were first meeting, I remember, you know, even the lunches that we would have just talking about what are the ways that we can think about using science and how can we make a difference, you know, it's that it's not something that science kind of happens in a, in a silo. And so I think that that's one of the things that makes me excited about the current field of research that I'm focusing in and kind of just my vision for that, you know, this field of research moving forward is, you know, we're, we're thinking about, you know, these really pressing issues that are really facing the international community in particular when it comes to CO2 emissions, when it comes to to climate change, and and really a lot of the CO2 questions and the emissions, uh, they they really sit kind of at the center of those challenges. You know, I think there was a recent IPCC report that came out earlier this this year that effectively kind of said, CO2 is the primary contributor to to warming that we've been able to observe, things that we've been able to directly measure. And of course, all of the the other effects that start to happen in terms of natural disasters when it comes to just changing climates, uh, when it comes to you know what areas are, of our world are going to become livable, um, what are going to you know requires different changes to personnel and of course to the to the migration of different people, um, and of course unfortunately it's going to continuously affect uh, black and brown people you know disproportionately uh, as as we kind of con- as we continue to see the effects of of climate change kind of continue to grow so. Um, the way I think of it is that, you know, CO2 reduction and just the overall space of CO2 capture and conversion and utilization, uh, it really centers at the, the heart of how do we deal with the 35 gigatons of CO2 that we're producing as a global, you know, environment as we're producing pretty much each and every year, those are net emissions of just CO2 that's just being put out into our atmosphere. And so there's a lot of great people, a lot of great minds that are kind of thinking about these problems. And a lot of it is wondering really around this, this, this one thought of, how do we deal with it you know what are we what are we going to do to get rid of all of the co2 that we're making and so there's a lot of people that are working on carbon capture there's a lot of people that are working on you know, you know of course restricting the way that we decarbonize a lot of these different industries you know are there ways for us to, mit- to mitigate and to minimize the amount of carbon that we're producing in the first place um, and I guess really at the heart of my research is that it's you know at some point we still have all of this co2 that's already out of the atmosphere where you know, we have 414 parts per million concentration of CO2 that's just floating around that we breathe in and it's only going to continue to increase and so at some point we had to figure out what do we do with all the carbon that we've already put out into the atmosphere and what do we do with all the carbon that's being continuously produced uh, whether they're at power plants whether they're at chemical you know industries uh, whatever is kind of producing a lot of this carbon uh, what do we do with with those point sources of co2 and can we be able to capture that and can we be able to convert that into something useful Um, And I think that's kind of really um, kind of at at the heart of what I do is figuring out how do we use 3D printing, how do we use advanced manufacturing to make these kind of novel reactors. You know, there's a lot of um, really, really good questions in terms of, you know, how do we be able to capture carbon? How do we be able to convert it? Um, But then for me specifically, how do we actually take that carbon and use it for something, you know, in a sense, useful? How do we turn it into uh, fuels? How do we turn it into, you know, uh, sustainable chemicals and, and plastics, things that are going to be biodegradable. How do we actually start to really revolutionize the way that we think about our carbon economy? Not only just from the standpoint of hey, it's going to be great for the environment, but then also it could really open up a lot of different industries um, and help us rethink the way that we're going to be able to make a lot of different products. So that's pretty much what my lab does. <laughs> is uh, we use three D printing and advanced manufacturing because it pretty much is, is it's a game changer. It allows us to be able to make chemical reactors and able to do so in a way that's like orders of magnitude cheaper than the way we currently make chemical reactors to do these kind of of, uh, processes. Uh, It also allows us to do it in a fraction of the time. I mean we can 3D print these really complex, you know, reactors down to like micron scale of of control over different uh, aspects of it. We can do that in hours and we can do it for basically 10 bucks and it just allows us to be able to start making a lot of really novel devices, a lot of novel electrolyzers, that we can then also be able to start thinking about scaling, um, and that just opens a lot of pathways. Um, not only just in terms of us being able to make an impact um, in our in our particular field, but then also when it comes to being able to make it accessible um, for a lot of other people to be able to, to be able to do this research that traditionally and historically not been given access to be able to do this kind of research.
0: That's incredible. Everything you're talking about is incredibly interesting, it's incredibly timely, and I for one feel a little bit safer knowing that someone like you was working on these issues. And for those of you that want to reach out to Dr. Feaster about research, please do so. Um, as we know, the uh, frontier research is being conducted at the National Labs. So, um, with that, I kind of want to get your opinion on some future facing topics. Um, So, as you mentioned, the newest IPCC report came out and it was a bit doom and gloom, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, putting it lightly, lightly, so as an expert in uh, CO2 conversion and that type of research, do you think that the current research that is out there and the current Ability to scale that research. Do you think that our current methods are feasible for capturing the carbon and converting it at scales necessary for the removal to actually exceed the emissions? Is this even feasible right now?
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's, that's a really good question because it's, it's one of those things where there's so many different aspects of, you know, dealing with climate change, dealing with carbon emissions and it's one of those things where I guess when I think of it, I, I, you know, a lot of times people will ask, oh, you know, is it possible that we're gonna did we're gonna be able to capture all the carbon that we're producing? Period. You know, can we capture all 35 gigatons of carbon, be able to store it underground? You know, can we be able to plant enough trees? Can we be able to, you know, build enough algae ponds? Can we, you know, which, which approach is going to work? Um, the way I kind of think of it is that the, the answer to me is, you know, when you think about those some of those multiple choice questions that you might Uh, face like on an exam, there's always sometimes the one at the very bottom of like, you know, kind of D, all of the above. And that's pretty much my mindset towards it is that I don't think it's necessarily going to be one technology that's going to be able to get us there. I think it's going to take all of the technologies. It's going to take all of us in terms of having the right mentalities Um, and not even just in terms of the science. You know, a lot of it is going to be policy driven. A lot of it's going to be just, you know, our, our lifestyle that we have to kind of think about, like, where are we going to get our electricity from? And are we okay being able to shift the way that we think about, you know, powering uh, our, our society in a lot of ways. Um, so that way we can be able to start mitigating carbon emissions. But especially when it comes to carbon capture and to conversion, I think that that's really kind of the, the missing link there. Um, there's a whole lot of promise in terms of these technologies being able to do what they need to do to be able to capture a lot of, of CO2, especially when we're talking about point sources of CO2. You know, uh, you, you know, there's a lot of great work going on with direct air capture, a lot of uh, some really exciting startups kind of coming out that are really tackling that challenge. Um, a lot of it is, you know, a lot of our attention is going to also be towards, you know, a lot of these industries, a lot of these these processes that make a ton of CO2 that then just get effectively vented out. And so there's going to be a lot of uh, hope that I have at, in terms of being able to capture a lot of that CO2 and be able to scale up carbon capture and, and conversion. The good news is that it's already, in a lot of ways, it's already at scale. You know, a lot of our carbon capture technologies are already there. Um, it's a matter of, you know, for the conversion to kind of catch up. And that's where uh, that's, you know, where I'm, I'm happy to be at a national lab, because that's really a, a focal point and a strength of ours is that we can really focus on how do we take the things that, you know, can sit on top of a lab bench and how do we actually be able to make it get to the point of actually, you know, running at, at a pilot plant kind of scale or, you know, really being able to take it from some small device to something that industries and in, and in, you know, startup businesses, and just in general, people around the world can kind of say, oh, that's big enough for me to see how it impacts, Um, you know, whether it's working at a one megawatt kind of scale or anything like that. So That's really kind of the way I think about it. Um, I think that the other aspect of it here too, that's to me is just as important. Um, is not only just the technology and getting that to a point where we're going to be able to use that and be able to scale that, but it's also really about, you know, and I, I kind of say this a lot, is it's not just about building the technology, but it's also about building the engineers. Uh, we have to really be thinking about the people that we're going to be training and the people that we're empowering to be able to lead a lot of this because there's going to be a lot of different opportunities that we may not necessarily see as people working on the tech uh, there might be times where you, you have an engineer that has a sustainability mindset and is able to say hey we can actually do this without producing as much carbon as we've been made, as we've been as we have been producing and so consequently let's use this technology and let's plug it in here let's see the opportunity and be able to realize and so I think it's you know, not just having all the technology, <clears throat> but it's also a matter of having the engineers and having the, the mindset, having the researchers, having the, the people that can actually have the right approach towards saying, hey, how do we actually be able to do our part, to be able to mitigate carbon emissions?
0: That's very profound. It's a very profound point of view about not only promoting the technology, but promoting the engineers uh, and in building the engineers to do these things. And I kinda wanna walk backwards in time a little bit um, to talk about how you became the engineer that you are. And so, okay, at at Georgia Tech, I mean, did you always know you wanted to do a PhD? And did you think that was the, the route to take to work on what you're working on now at Livermore? And can you walk us through why you chose that field and why you chose Stanford University?
1: Yeah. Oh, it was, I, to answer it quickly, no, not at all. (laughs) Not whatsoever. I think that for me, it's, it kind of, to me, gets back to just how I even got into science in in general, which was, you know, growing up, I'm, I'm originally from uh, just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, You know, and so growing up, I remember, you know, my, my parents kind of told me pretty, pretty early. I was like five or six. They were like, we're not paying for college. So like, just, this is what it is. Like, you know, here's, here's the situation. Um, I remember thinking, especially like in elementary school and middle school, you know, I used to think that I was going to like go to the NBA because that was like what I was always watching. So I would see like, you know, and, and, and of course I had family members that were, that were pretty athletic, pretty tall that, you know, went to college and played ball. And so I kind of grew up thinking, oh, you know, at one point I'm going to, I'm going to hit my growth spurt. I'm also going to go, you know, follow that path. And so, you know, I, Hit the first gross, I hit my first gross spurt, and I was like, All right, we're we getting there, you know, we're we gonna get there. And then I'm still waiting on the second gross spurt, but you know, once, once that hits, you know, the NBA, gotta watch out. So, but uh, basically, w- what happened from all of that was, you know, I, I think I really started shifting my mindset towards like, okay, you know, I, I really like doing math and science, and, and a lot of those things kind of started speaking to me, and I, I got really driven. Uh, I wanna say right around like the 10th grade in high school where I had a a phenomenal teacher, um, Ms. McLean uh, at Harding uh, High School in Charlotte. And she was an incredible mentor and she really pushed me um, and exposed me to kind of like the field of chemistry. And so to the point where I was looking for college, I was looking for a job, basically. Um, I was starting to think about, okay, I gotta save up money to pay for college. So like, what jobs can I get? How can I start to earn some money to be able to afford it? Um, I ended up applying for a job at a chemistry lab at UNC Charlotte uh, with Professor Smedicky there, and had no idea what I was doing. Just was like, hey, they, they advertised it as like a effectively like a dishwasher. I was effectively just cleaning glassware for like six, eight hours a day for this chemistry lab, <clears throat> and it got me exposed to kind of this field of research that I had really no idea about. I had never really heard about it, never really thought about it. Um, and from that experience, what it really kind of showed me was as a part of that research, um, it just, you know, cleaning, I'm literally cleaning dishes for like the first two weeks. And eventually, you know, the research that they're doing is really cool. They're doing some stuff for like water purification. So I got kind of really interested in it and started reading papers and had no idea what the papers were meaning. But I was like, I'll, you know, look it up. I'll figure things out. Um, and I eventually approached the professor to ask him just, you know, hey, I got like four weeks left. Do you mind if I like kind of play around with some ideas, try to, you know, maybe try to do some, some interesting stuff? And he was like, go for it. You know, he kind of gave me a, especially for a 16 year old, you know, uh, high school student, you know, who's been just cleaning all your glassware all summer. You know, he was like, go for it. He just, you know, kind of trust me with that. And that, that really, um, those, last four, those last four weeks really showed me um, just how well you can be able to partner science and service. Um, and especially with taking a mindset of science as a vehicle to be able to serve and help others. Um, I was in that, in those four weeks, I was able to make a device that actually purified water when you put it out in the sun and it you know broke down different things and things worked far better than I ever thought they were gonna work on that for that project. And that really kind of speared me towards thinking of a, of a space of research, um, but not so much as just research for science or for a love of science or anything like that, but really research where you can do science as a form of service. And you know, that, that, you know, fortunately I was able to, to get a full ride to go to Georgia Tech and that really just, you know, took care of a lot of the, a lot of the, the stresses and issues that I was dealing with, but then also at the same time, I had no idea what was going to happen after, you know, I kind of thought of it as, oh, okay, you know, I was able to get school paid for and I'm going to go get a job and, you know, these are the things that I've seen everybody in my space do. <clears throat> and then, you know, of course, when people would talk, oh, you know, I'd had professors that would actually, that would actually ask me like, oh. You know, you're really, you know, you're doing really well in these classes. You should really think about, you know, pursuing some kind of graduate education. And I would kind of, you know, dismiss it as, oh, you know, I can't, I can't afford it. You know, I worked really hard to get the money to pay for college here. That sounds expensive. I, I ain't got to like that. And one of my mentors literally pulled me aside. And so he kind of was like, he was like, no, seriously, you should really, you should really think about this. And I was like, ah, you know, kind of the, the standard, the standard pitch that I kind of gave most of them. I ain't got to like that. You know I'm just I'm just here I'm here for a good time I feel like this has been great and he was like no they'll they'll pay you to do research they'll they'll pay you to get your PhD and I was like oh okay that that changes the game and just understanding that you know there were stipends and just under, like almost demystifying the entire PhD process I think really opened my eyes towards like oh this is actually a pathway that I can pursue. Um, and it gives me a way to be able to continue doing research uh, and especially doing research with a, with a heart towards helping others. Uh, but then also to get paid for it. I was like, this is, this is kind of the dream. This is, this is basically like what I, I wanna do for life is be able to work on really cool and really hard problems and develop some really interesting technology and especially be able to do it in a way that's gonna be able to impact society and to, to show so many other people what they can be able to do, especially black and brown, uh, the next generation of black and brown researchers. That, that's the dream, and so that's you know what, what drew me towards applying for a PhD. And uh, fortunately, I was able to meet some really great people at Stanford uh, that you know uh, encouraged me, and that you know as it kind of turned out, ended up really being champions uh, for me as I kind of navigated different spaces, especially as a black researcher. Uh, and you know, at the end of the day, it's it it worked out uh, where you know that that one conversation kind of completely pivoted my entire career in a lot of ways to where I didn't, to things that I did not think, and that, I guess things that I hadn't been exposed to, um, but it kind of opened my eyes to something that, you know, I ended up pursuing, and was, I'm, I'm very grateful that I did.
0: One conversation changed your entire trajectory. Yeah, so circling back to themes that come up over and over in our episodes, mm-hmm. mentorship.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Having access to someone that's willing to just sit down and tell you things that you can't read online or in a
1: book. Yep, yep. That lived experience, it, it, it speaks so much to it because it's just, it's something that, you know, like you said, you can, you can Google it, you can ask questions, but then just to have that person that can kind of give you that one-on-one, that specify, like, I know you, and I care enough about you to be able to talk about these things and push you to being able to achieve things. That just goes, you know, above and beyond in terms of the impact and the imprint that it really lives and it leaves on, uh, on, on everybody's life, so.
0: <laughs> and so, make, maybe a full circle moment. Um, can you talk to our listeners and be maybe, and just share a little bit of that lived experience about how you uh, initiated or was successful and how you were successful at starting your career as a researcher at a national lab? Um, I know a lot of people that want to do this and um, the process is a little bit mysterious. So can you give us a little bit of advice about how to be competitive for these positions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that was so I know for me when I was graduating, I, I finished my Ph.D. around the end of 2017. And I remember all of the stress when I was defending and trying to finish my dissertation and everything else. And I remember thinking, like, I just need to take some time to at least figure out what my options are. I'm not sure if I'm, like, even ready to apply. My advisor was pushing me towards um, applying for, you know, for for faculty positions out of grad school. And I was like, I don't think I'm ready for that. It sounds like something that would be amazing to be able to pursue at some point, be able to lead a research team, to be able to have a lab, to be able to, to kind of guide research. But I was like, I've just been working for you, you know, for you know, five years. And so this has been great. Don't get me wrong. But also, like, I don't know what it means to lead a team like this. I, had, I don't have any of the experience there. One of the things that I started looking at was, um, and, and I guess uh, before I forget, the other thing, too, was that, you know, you know, you made some money as a uh, as a Ph.D., you know, candidate and everything or as a researcher, but it wasn't enough money. <laughs> and so I think that that was something for me where I was like, wherever I go, I kind of need to make some money. I kind of like, you know, I need to, I want to start at least being able to build at least a little bit of a foundation for the, for the life goals that I had set. And so when I was, you know, looking for, for job opportunities and everything, I didn't feel qualified for, for applying a balcony. And looking back, I, I probably should have threw my hat into the ring. And that kind of gets to maybe my first point, which is that never underestimate yourself. You know, don't take yourself out of the equation. You know, if you have to at least put yourself out there and if things work out, they work out. If they don't, they don't, but it's one of the things that that you just can't count yourself out. You know, you can't take yourself out of the equation in terms of whether or not an opportunity is for you. Um, I think that, you know, in addition to that, one of the things I realized, especially when I was looking for uh, some postdoc opportunities was I knew that I was like, you know, a lot of academic postdocs were going to kind of feel like, effectively uh, extended graduate school, um, you know, just effectively more of the same of what I had been exposed to. And I wanted to get experience actually, you know, being able to apply for funding, being able to actually start to think about like, what does it mean to put together a lab? What does it mean to be able to, you know, to, to guide and lead research? Um, and I think that those were things that uh, Lawrence Livermore, uh, and I, I spoke to a few people there, that were really influential, I think that that kind of really opened my eyes to like what I thought National Labs did versus what they actually do. One of the really nice things is that at Lawrence Livermore in particular is that there's a, an amount of money basically or a percentage of your time that's basically just dedicated for you to, to do effectively whatever you want to do. It, it kind of was about 25% of just like a, a postdoc, you know, professional development fund is what they kind of refer to it as. And then that just completely uh, just completely changed the game for me because the ability to have time that they were willing to invest and pay for and say, do whatever you want to do, write proposals, finish papers, <clears throat> you know, teach a class, uh, build outreach, you know, and, and basically be able to build the pipelines that I've been able to build at, at the lab. And to be able to do that for, for two and a half, three years as a postdoc, that was just phenomenal. Um, And I think that was something that really drew me towards the national lab setting. And it kind of started to demystify what do they do at national labs. And a lot of the space there is that there's a lot of fundamental research, but then there's a lot of emphasis on how do we actually start applying a lot of this research? How do we start to scale it? How do we start to build these things up? Because it kind of sits at this at this juncture point between a lot of academic labs and a lot of industry uh, and commercial uh, interests. Um, as well as a lot of the policy and a lot of the the government kind of sector in terms of how does that fit into a lot of the the work that we do. And so it, it was almost this perfect nexus of being able to say, hey, I'm able to work with a lot of brilliant minds that are able to do a lot of great academic research. I can also talk to a lot of industry professionals and get an idea of like kind of in a sense, what is the real world kind of need? Um, you know, how do we actually take all this really cool work that's been done, and how do we kind of identify the opportunities and the needs that so we can be able to scale the technology to be able to fit, and then also to be able to work with, um, to be able to work with a lot of government agencies, and to understand there, you know, how do we actually um, change policy? What are the things that we need to be considering when it comes to changing that policy? And all of those things together, I think, allowed me to. Interface with a lot of different groups and a lot of different people in a way that was, that was really, really attractive. And so, um, you know, of course, that, that experience changes from national lab to national lab, but that's really, I would say, an underarching theme is that there's a lot of great fundamental research that happens. And then there's also a lot of opportunities to interact and to interface with a lot of industry professionals and in as well as with a lot of um, government professionals as well. But in terms of just even envisioning a career at a national lab, absolutely just reach out, absolutely whether it's a job posting, if you see any research talks that somebody is giving that's represented at a national lab, form those kind of connections, form those relationships. There's a lot of opportunities, I think, to be able to give seminars, to be able to at least learn more, to even have a conversation and to see if there's an ability to collaborate, you know, between wherever you're doing research at and wherever that national lab is doing. Um, You know, I, I know that I got a little nervous when I was applying because I think I only had two first author publications to my name at the time. And Didn't feel like I had a lot of experience, didn't feel like I was particularly qualified. Um, And one of the things that I remember very just astutely was uh, I applied and uh, they they kind of reached out. And one of the things that they said is, you know, like you're an expert in your field. And I think that that was one of the first times I had heard someone else comment and say that you are an expert. And it reminded me that, you know, whether you're doing a PhD for for four or five, six plus years, or if you're doing a, a research as a master's student, even if you're doing undergraduate research, um, wherever you're doing research at, you're building an expertise. And that's gonna allow you to be able to speak intelligently to where it's just any group of people about the field that you're in. And to almost, I have a sticky note kind of right out, outside of my, my lab, of, or at least outside of my, my office at the lab, that kind of says like, you know, don't forget you're an expert. You know, like wherever you move, wherever the spaces that I find myself in, you're an expert. I, I've been doing CO2 reduction research for, at this point, almost 10 years. And I think it's easy sometimes to still feel kind of like the first year grad student of, ooh, I don't really know everything I'm talking about here. I feel like if y'all knew what I don't know, y'all would not want me up on this stage. But then one of the things that I will have to remind myself is that, no, you're an expert. Like, this is who you are. Like, you've been doing this and you can speak to all of these different aspects of this field because you've been doing it. Um, and you've been building and you've been, put, you've been putting in the work. You know. And I think that that was something that to consistently remind myself and that I, I would share with anyone that's interested in applying, you know, not only for national labs, but just you know, wherever they might be, wherever you might want to apply, um, that you put in the work you know, and that you're an expert. And you know, when you remind yourself of that, it's like, okay, no, like, I have to move like that. You know, I have, to, I have to convince myself that I am an expert. All right, look, let's get this, so.
0: Yeah, that's great. So you, you're your own champion, you're your own cheerleader. And um, that's wonderful, that's wonderful (laughs) advice. And that leads me into the next part of this podcast where I know unequivocally that you have given that advice to other people. You talked about how you do research that has a a service orientation. And so quite naturally, it, it makes sense that you would be at the helm of such a wonderful organization. And once again, uh, to the listeners, I'm talking about uh, Jeremy's philanthropic foundation, um, the Feaster Foundation, which you established in 2012. Yep. And so if you guys are keeping up with the timeline, he's in grad school. (laughs) 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 I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't starting foundations in grad school. And so... I'm super curious about learning the ins and outs and your your vision for the future for the foundation. So the first yeah. thing I want to ask you is, can you walk us through uh, the steps that you took to conceptualize the foundation and, and legalize the foundation?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that was, man, that was, I'm thinking about that. That was almost 10 years ago as well. You know, we're going to be hitting our 10-year uh, kind of uh, just, anniversary effectively uh coming up next next June and so that's actually how I helped the foundation actually started is it started right before I went to grad school so I it, and even then the conceptualization of it was just that it happened probably around probably around the same time that actually that we met um in 2009 it was you know starting to do tutoring I was doing a lot of tutoring on campus and um part of a lot of the conversations I was having with other tutors was we were realizing like you know we're, we're doing a lot of of the work to help out, especially help other underserved communities, whether that's black or brown or, you know, just a plethora really. And it was one of those things of just like, I saw firsthand just how much people cared, how much my, my fellow peers were putting in this work to be able to help others, um, you know, staying, you know, I remember we would stay up to 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night, tutoring and mentoring, and just being like, hey, you can get through general chemistry. We can work through those classes. We'll get you through the tests you know, staying up all night, you know, giving review sessions for for final exams. Um, All of those things kind of just showed me the amount of work and the amount of effort that so many people are already putting in, you know, and that in a lot of ways isn't really necessarily called out. It's not really necessarily uh, recognized. And so um, towards uh, the end of my time as a undergraduate student at Tech, I realized that, you know, I ended up, uh, I, I graduated early and I had extra money left on my scholarship. And so I kind of approached, uh, you know, the kind of scholarship, the the stamp scholarship at Beck, and it was Chafee Vitz that was the director. And he had just started probably about a year in or so. And so he's kind of got, you know, this this 21-year-old, you know, (laughs) kid kind of coming to him like, hey, I got an idea. And I started thinking about it just, it it, was really the inception of it was I wanted to do something that was going to recognize the service that people were doing. And, I, you know, it kind of began as I wanted to do a scholarship based on just community service, you know, where it's like, you know, there's so many merit-based scholarships and all these other scholarships and everything else. And I wanted to have something that was like, if you are Black or brown and you're doing community service, this is a scholarship for you. Um, and so I kind of pitched this idea to him. You know, he's like, okay, this, this sounds great. This sounds great. And then, and then of course, comes the, the question that I was super nervous to ask, which was, can you give me money to do this? can you give me the money on my scholarship to do this and you know we you know i kind of was really nervous and i absolutely lowballed myself i think when i approached him i think i was just like yeah because he remember him asking he was like how much money do you need you know to, to be able to do this um and i was like i don't know maybe 4000 dollars and looking back, I'm like, I wish I had added some zeros to that. Like, why did I not just be all of it? Just whatever you got, just pass that. Let me know. But that was 21-year-old Jeremy just, you know, thinking, oh, if he gives me 4000 That's a lot of money. You know, I could, I've never really had that much money like that. So I was thinking that even at the time that that was a huge number. So, I, One thing I would definitely say, always ask above what you think is reasonable ask for as much as you think you can get and go from whatever kind of happens from that point. Um, fortunately, they had to kind of work some things out to the point where even the uh, Pro Stamps gets involved, uh, the, the funder of the scholarship and is like, no, we, let's make it work, you know, just, just give them the money, this is gonna be great. Um, and so I, I started it uh, and so literally just, uh, you know, they, I'm kind of, again, 21 year old kid, I, I'm about to start grad school. This was like summertime of 2012. I'm about to start grad school. I have four thousand dollars, just a check of four thousand dollars, and I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it's all these ideas of like, oh, yeah, we're gonna do a scholarship. And I was like, well, how do you do a scholarship? How do you even do any of the things that I'm talking about doing? And so, of course, uh, because I this is just who I am, is I went to a bookstore and bought like how to start a nonprofit for dummies. You know, I was like, all right, so now I got you know, three thousand nine hundred and fifty bucks left after I bought some books to, to try to tell me what to do. Um, but it, honestly, a lot of it was just, uh, it, it started growing because I, I kind of had this idea and it's, it's kind of led it into our, a lot of our mentorship programs, which was like, you have a passion and there's an art to going from passion to action um, and being able to just take that first step. And I'm a big, 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 big believer in the idea of the, the hardest step is going from zero to one is just how do you be able to come with nothing and say, okay, how do I turn this nothing into at least anything, even if it is just a PowerPoint slide, even if it's just something that I'm having to create from scratch. Um, and then, I, you know, again, what it, what it does for me is it, it's kind of this, this concept of momentum or inertia. It allows you to be able to build some kind of system. It allows you to start to be able to cultivate something that then allows you to build and to to bring others alongside of you to be able to continue towards the vision um, and be able to really be able to achieve kind of whatever you're trying to achieve. And so from that point, it was literally, you know, I got the book, I started reading through it. I I devoured the book and was like, all right, I think I have an idea of what I'm doing. It says I need to, you know, come up with a name. And so I remember spending, I wanna say like two weeks trying to come up with some name that was like the perfect name for the organization, the perfect name for the nonprofit. Uh, you know I would do so many different iterations and I, at two weeks in I had I had no I, I, had, I didn't have a name. I still didn't have a name. I didn't have a name that I was happy with. and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I remember I was like sitting at like my you know I was, I was at home uh, back in Charlotte um, sitting at you know at the kitchen table just like I don't know what I'm doing it, It's like literally like all the crumpled up like sticky notes and everything because I'm a sticky note person. It was a bunch of crumpled up sticky notes. and I was like, I don't like any of these names. I've been trying to do this for two weeks. maybe I shouldn't do it. And my mom just like walks by and she's like, you know, like, what's this mess? What are you doing? Like, I don't know. I'm sure. I can't come up with a name. I can't come up with a name. I'm stuck. And she was just like, this is why you haven't done all of the work that you've been wanting to do. This is why you haven't got this thing moving is because you don't have a name. She was like, call it after yourself and be done with it. Just start helping people. It's more important to help people than to have the right, you know, founding name in order to partner with them. And I remember that lesson because I think what it did is it, it kind of got me out of, in a sense, it kind of got me out of my own head. And so I was like, okay, you know, and of course, if she's, she's listening to this, she's gonna be like, oh, of course, you know, she's always, she's always, um, but basically it, what it did is it just kind of instilled this other lesson in me, which was like, move. A lot of times we get in our own way. A lot of times that we allow our, our own thoughts, our own you know limitations, our own self-imposed limitations to prevent us from doing the things that we know we're supposed to do and so i remember just you know literally the next day was like it's the feaster foundation that's the name and we're just going to start doing it you know i literally filed uh, articles of incorporation to actually create an organization legally in the state of north carolina uh was able to then get an employee identification number and, and it just started building i started it the things started actually happening uh Jeff, Jeffrey Twomb was, uh, you know, pretty much kind of has been with me since day one with the nonprofit. And I remember, you know, pitching this idea to several people. And Jeff was like, I love it. Let's like, I want to help. How can I help? And was like, I don't know what we're going to do, but I'm glad you want to help. So let's let's figure it out together. And that's pretty much been kind of the story of the foundation has been a lot of learning on the go, a lot of, uh, you know, lessons, both good ones and bad ones that we've kind of, you know, been able to walk through and and understand and, and learn. And I you know I remember you know the first time we uh, we gave out scholarships in 2013, so we were you know kind of working towards it, and we actually were able to raise about 500 dollars for our first scholarship. And I remember looking, you know, we get up on stage at you know the uh, the award ceremony and uh, the Tower Awards for Georgia Tech, and our and we're you know we're given the speech, and we're like you know again we're these like 22 year old, just like we're nervous, like we look like the kids in the audience, we're just like we got a scholarship for this person. Um, and, and part of it was that there was so much, you know, nervousness of so many different aspects of building the nonprofit. That at some point you just start saying, you know what, I'm, we're just gonna do it, and it's not, it can't, it's not gonna be perfect. I, I can't allow myself to get wrapped up in the mindset that it has to be perfect in order for us to be able to move forward. A lot of times it's more important for it to get done. A lot of times getting and having the impact on the students, having the impact on the communities that we're, that we're working with, is much more important than it looking you know, in this image, picture perfect, kind of like, you know, wrapped up with a bow. A lot of times it's just a matter of just do it, just get out there and just make the impact, you know, be able to figure it out, you know, be able to, to ask people to be able to build mentorship, um, to be able to actually put all those things together. But and from that point, you know, we were able to get our 501c3 uh, nonprofit status in 2015, Uh, we were able to, you know, kind of start to expand the scholarship program in 2019. And to to the point now, you know, we're giving out scholarships around the country. Um, We have our scholarships kind of lined up for uh, this upcoming year, pretty much to be able to benefit and and reward Black and Brown students um, that are doing community service and making an impact and that are, you know, kind of lifting as you climb, that are that 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 dedicated not only to being able to succeed in, in their own careers, but then also to see others be able to succeed in their careers as well.
0: It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, The bit about just moving and getting out of your own head. In fact, there were a lot of good tidbits in there. Um, So thank you for sharing that. It's a a very inspirational story. And just to follow up a little bit about uh, getting foundation started and developing your partnerships, what are some of your best practices for developing these strong relationships with some of your foundation affiliates?
1: Yeah, I think you actually just hit it right there in terms of relationships. Um, that you know these partnerships—they're not transactional. You know, they're not in a lot of ways. They're not just trying to, um, or particularly when you're talking about uh, donors, when you're talking about people that you know you're, that come alongside of your image and your, and your impact. I think that that's really kind of the focal point: is that it becomes about impact. It becomes about um, being aligned on the good that you're gonna be able to do. Sometimes it's easy, especially in the nonprofit space to get really focused on programs, on activities, on here's all the things we're gonna do, you know, here's, here's how great it's gonna look. And a lot of times it's it gets a little bit deeper than that to say, hey, we're all on the same team here. We all want to see this impact happen. And so as a result, it, it allows you to kind of get past saying, okay, hey, give me the money and we good in terms of more of a, hey, here's what we're gonna do. You know. And more specifically, here's the impact that we're going to make, you know, with the money that you're donating, this is what we're going to be able to do with it. And here's the impact and the good that we're going to be able to do together. And I think that was one of the things that allows us to build really strong relationships is that it's, it's not, you know, it's not focused just on, Hey, this is what you get for your money in a sense, but it's like, here's the people, here are the stories, you know, here's the the positive impact that we're going to be able to create together. Um, I think another thing that was was a big lesson uh, that it took me a minute to learn, especially leading, I would say, a a nonprofit was to be consistent um, and to be able to show up. Um, Sometimes it's just a matter of saying, hey, we have to have some level of consistent communication, whether it's consistently communicating to our donors, whether it's consistently communicating to our affiliates, to our partners, uh, even to our scholars. You know, we follow up and try to try to maintain relationships with our with our you know, with our scholars, because we want them to continue to be able to go out and be able to make an impact, Um, you know, even after they kind of have received our scholarship. And that's one of the strongest things that I'm really, really happy about is that the impact that our scholars have been able to make, whether it's starting their own organizations, whether it's making their own impacts, that's what we wanted to see. That was the vision, was that it's not just something that exists within the Feaster Foundation, but that every student, every scholar that comes through our foundation, whether it's through mentorship or whether it's through scholarship um, whether it's just from you know running into each other at a seminar or something, we want them to be able to make a better impact because of the things that we were able to share, um, and that's that's at the heart of it. And I think that that kind of gets exactly to the heart of being able to build strong relationships because you know there's an authenticity behind just wanting to see that impact that allows us to be able to show that we're on the same page, whether it's with affiliates, whether it's with donors, or whether it's even with our scholars.
0: That's great, and that brings me to my next question. And you just touched on it; you talked about how the your works and the impact have been beneficial for your student recipients. And so, I'd like to know a little bit more in detail about how the foundation has impacted your student recipients so far. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've it's kind of a, it's a source. Uh, it makes me it makes me smile <laughs> when I think about it because you know since 2013, it's this idea. That, you know, like I said, like 10 years ago, it was just literally an idea, but now we can say, you know, um, it, it's all about that impact. It's, you know, we can say, oh, you know, we've, we've awarded you know, $10,000 in scholarships, you know, to students. And we've mentored hundreds of students around the country. We've helped them start their own nonprofits, you know, in different areas of the country. But I think that that's really, to me, the biggest thing that I, it makes me just, you know, fills my heart up is that we're able to show that these, these kids have gone off and continue to make some really great impacts. Um, whether it's starting their own 501c3s, um, whether it's just being able to to encourage and have this mentality of lifting as you climb and that they're able to impart on effectively everybody that they meet um, and on their peers. And, you know, we kind of have this 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 mindset of it's, you know, it's all about exponents. It's that, you know, you're talking about an exponential impact and it's something where not just limited to oh we're only going to be able to help these students today or we're only going to be able to help these people here but there's a sustainability in the leadership and in the mentorship that we're able to provide that allows them to be able to replicate um, and be able to add to that to the point where now you know it's no longer just you know uh, you know uh, two times or four times or fourfold kind of impact now we're talking about them being able to set up their own institutions being able to set up their own foundations their own initiatives to be able to make that impact and to continue to make that that um, those strides towards being able to, to share this the same image, the same mentality, the same message um, with, with their communities as well. And so it becomes just this exponential increase of, of impact and of, of, and of a positive nature, especially when it comes to representing and, and showing that you can do community service alongside of all of the other things that you might be doing in your career. And in a lot of ways, they're complementary They go hand in hand. And so I think that that whole that whole mentality of an exponential impact um, is something that just, you know, I'm really happy to be able to see that the foundation has been able to to make over the last like nine, almost 10 years.
0: That's brilliant. And it speaks to the longevity of your vision and it speaks to how you guys have been successful in implementing sustainable practices into your mentorship. It's very impressive. And so um, you alluded to, I would say it's your motto or your, your mission or mantra yep. of lift as you climb. And I don't know if my day one listeners remember me mentioning this in episode one. I was hoping to get you on the podcast and you're here. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Uh, I thought that lift as you climb was an especially poignant uh, mission because unfortunately, Many people in STEM and academia, they don't lift as they climb. In fact, they pull the ladder mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so you you, <laughs> I'm not wrong. It? <laughs> not at all. So can you explain to the listeners why you chose that, why that's the central theme of your mentorship, and why it's so important for other BIPOC scholars to lift as they climb?
1: Yeah. Well, I think originally it's it's coming from a quote from Angela Davis. And I think that even beyond there. <clears throat> it's something that i think just resonated in the sense that you know this this the barriers that we have to overcome the things that are that have been put in place that are the problems that are just as pervasive honestly um kind of in society they are things that we're not going to be able to deconstruct or to dismantle alone you know we're not going to we're not going to be able to say oh i'm i'm on my island and i've been able to establish my own little safe space here and Good luck for everybody else. But, you know, I kind of did it. Deuces, exactly, like, I'm out. You know, it's like, that's not, that's not going to happen. And I think at the same time, you know, I remember when I was starting um, and I remember getting a lot of advice from some older Black mentors that I had at the time. And they were, you know, kind of saying, oh, this isn't the right time. You know, you got to wait till you're more established. You got to, you know, wait wait till you made it. And then you can get back. Then, you know, when you're 40, 50, then, you, you know, you have the resources. And I remember just kind of, you know, Politely, tactfully, but uh, very, very firmly, kind of saying, I don't, I appreciate that advice. I don't subscribe to it. Um, I think that, you know, you're never too young to make a difference. And I think that that's exactly what you see today in, in terms of a lot of, of just just our, our younger generations that are continuing to make an impact and that are not content to wait until they've arrived, quote unquote. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, we kind of have a saying that, you know, your, your experience is invaluable, you know, whatever that experience is. Because you don't know how that experience and how your story is going to be able to impact some of the other people. And especially when it comes to BIPOC scholars, especially when it comes to underserved communities and for black and brown students, especially, you know, these, these obstacles that are just as pervasive that just to me tells me that the solutions just have to be just as pervasive. We have to be able to hit this thing exactly wherever it wants to hide, you know, wherever it wants to try to embed itself. That's where we're going to be able to uproot it. Uh, it, it reminds me, there's a quote um, that one of our scholars, Lydia uh, Lowermore moore from Spelman in 2019, that she kind of mentioned in her application. And it, it's kind of stuck with us actually, we kind of put it at, at one of our forefronts is that, you know, it's, it's lifting as you climb really means to, it's a, and it's an understanding that nothing really happens in a vacuum, nothing happens in isolation. Um, I think her, her direct quote is that we're not solely products um, of our own efforts. Um, you know, we're not basically in this thing by ourselves or isolated you know, but our families, our friends, and our communities kind of propel us towards and and forward uh, towards success. Um, They can inspire us when our energies are depleted. And I think that it's something there that, you know, just when I can reflect on my own experience, when I can reflect on all of our scholars, and it's a consistent theme, you know, just across the board that it's not just us. It's not just, you know, It wasn't just Jeremy getting his degree, you know, getting, you know, getting degrees from TAG and everything else. It was mentors. It was friends. It was people literally saying, hey, you know, are you hungry? Let me cook. Let me get you something to eat. You know, let me give you a place to to stay when I was in California, you know, and looking for family and feeling homesick and realizing, like, I'm on the other side of the country. It was having mentors that were able to say, just come through. Come through for the holidays. We got you. We'll give you a place to feel community. We'll give you a place to recharge. We'll give you a place to be safe. Um, to be able to voice, you know, your concerns or your, you know, the things that you're upset about, um, and to know that you're going to have comfort, you're going to have support, to be able to vent, to be able to be encouraged, um, to be able to be edified. I think that there's so much to that that we get and that we gain from a community approach towards building and dismantling a lot of the things that are we're um, building a lot of the positive things and dismantling a lot of the negative things that um, are are kind of present day. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, it's it's kind of at the heart of it is that, you know, together, if we're all lifting each other up as we're all climbing together, you know, we can all be able to overcome a lot of the burdens that I think have been placed in front of us.
0: Wonderfully said. Wonderfully said. And in fact, over the past 18 or so months, we've really had to rely on our networks, our communities to keep ourselves uplifted. Yeah. You know? Um, and I'm just curious, over this period of uh, global, global challenges, I'm wondering mm-hmm. if this has impacted the foundation in any way, and if yeah. so, how?
1: Yeah, if anything, <clears throat> it's kind of funny, part of our, part of our uh, little curriculum that we've developed for our mentorship, one of the things there is being culturally uh, relevant and aware, um, especially as a leader. And I think that one of the things that, you know, with the start of COVID and of course with well, also with a lot of the racial unrest and just the, the police brutality and systemic oppression that became at the forefront um, during the summer of 2020 and beyond, um, it, it really challenged us to say, you know, hey, we, we normally have been doing this literacy climb scholarship, you know, things have been going great, but what are we called to do in this moment? And I think that that caused us to really pivot uh, our scholarship that year and that we've kind of continued to do for this year. Um, to really be able to address uh, a lot of the the racial injustice that has been just, I mean, to be frank, that's been at the forefront, and that it's it's ridiculous that it's been um, that's taken this long for us to get to the point of uh, being able to to really try to rectify it and to truly dismantle it. And so, actually, what we ended up doing is we, you know, originally we were thinking of oh, we, well, we can do a lift as you climb scholarship, just you know, specifically for maybe these kind of communities. Um, but then we really kind of felt led to, effectively to create, um, we call it our, our Justice for Bree scholarship, especially kind of given uh, the injustice that occurred and that is still occurring uh, for Brianna Taylor and, and how we're going to continue to call for justice on her behalf. And I think that part of that scholarship was, you know, with her story of being an award-winning uh, award-winning uh, EMT responder and everything else, what we ended up doing, we created a scholarship that awarded Black and brown students uh, that were involved in the healthcare industry, and so if they were, you know, involved and in especially serving on, on the front the front lines of COVID um, during, the, you know, at the you know as we've been in this pandemic, um, you know, we wanted to be able to showcase their stories and to really be able to say, you know, here's so many other people just like Brianna Taylor that are that are just wanting to make a positive change, that are sitting there and going above and beyond and responding in the moment of, of a lot of crises. Uh, to still be able to serve others, to still be able to put others first, um, to still be able to lift as they're climbing. And so, you know, we were able to award scholarships around the country. Um, we were able to support just Rihanna Taylor movement. Um, and we're looking to be looking forward to being able to do the exact same thing this year as well. And um, in addition to our lift as you climb scholarships. Um, and that's just kind of how we, you know, it's, it's at our heart, it's at our heart. So we're, we're wanting to amplify this culture and the community of lifting as you climb. And that's what it looks like, um, is being able to respond in real time, you know, to be able to, to, to do the things that we can do.
0: That's great. And you've pivoted to support people in response to this global crisis. And so thank you for that. And um, that should be evidence enough for our listeners to be excited to support the Feaster <laughs> Foundation. So can you tell us uh, where do we go to donate yeah. or make contributions to the foundation?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, so... Um, I would say there's really two ways that we're really looking uh, for and needing kind of support. Uh, The first is to donate. Uh, You could go to www.heasterfoundation.org. You know, you can go to our donate tab there. Um, We have, you know, we can accept text, we can accept Cash App, PayPal, et cetera. Um, You know, there's a lot of different ways to give. It's pretty straightforward. And, you know, we're really looking uh, specifically right now, we're really looking to build our, our scholarship fund. And so those that that fund, any, all of the dollars that basically get donated um, to our scholarship fund directly go to our students. And so we're just looking to be able to increase the amount of students that we can be able to help, um, uh, especially whether it's for the Lift D.C. Climb Scholarship or if it's the Justice for Breonna Taylor Scholarship, um, there's a little tab that allows you just to effectively select which, which scholarship fund you want to donate to. But that's really uh, the first way that you can be able to definitely help and support um, the initiatives and the efforts that we're doing. And we incredibly grateful for any, any amount, any contribution. Um, the second thing is also to volunteer with us. Um, we're always looking for volunteers, uh, whether it's you know, helping with our mentorship program, whether it's uh, being able to expand our impact. Um, we're, we're super excited to have anybody that's motivated, uh, that has that same passion for lifting as you climb to be able to join with us and for us to be able to, to work alongside of you um, and to join alongside of you to be able to continue to make the impacts that we're making. And so you can, of course, also go to pisterfoundation.org. You can reach out directly to us, um, to the team, and we'd be more than happy to, to continue to have conversations and figure out, you know, whether it's speaking or being able to share experiences, share resources, um, any and all of the things that people are willing to give, you know, the time, talents, and energy um, would be just phenomenal. And so either of those two ways are, are will be great ways to be able to partner with us. Um, and then, you know, be able to to continue to see how this impact can continue to be able to expand.
0: Okay, wonderful. And I'll also link those pages in the description box. So thanks, Jeremy, for sharing all of that wonderful information about the Feaster Foundation, and we look forward to following your guys's progress over the next the next ten years. <laughs> <laughs> and so. Uh, in the spirit of under the hood, okay, I want to ask a few questions that poke at the nuances of being mm. uh, someone with intersecting identities in STEM and particularly yeah. in research. Yeah. So, um, um segueing from uh, talking about the Feaster Foundation into under the hood, um, have you faced any challenges with running your foundation while being a full time researcher?
1: I can't even begin <laughs> to talk about some of those challenges. It's, uh, I'm not going to lie, there's been times where it's been tough. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a fully believer in being transparent. And there were times, especially in those first few years, where I was exhausted. Um, it was just, you know, you're trying to do research, you're trying to learn how to be a graduate researcher and to make sure that, you know, the wheels are still on your projects and everything else. But then you're also trying to learn how do you, you know, manage a nonprofit? How do you continue to do, you know, scholarships? And how do you get 501c3 status? And, you know, set up all the different bank accounts and make sure that all the taxes and all the finances are kind of well organized and that there's a system. Uh, it, it's, it was difficult um, at times because I think that, um, and it kind of gets, it's interesting, I guess, in some of the challenges there because um, one of the things that I know I had to overcome in those first few years was kind of, I had this, a CEO mindset, which is like kind of like, a chief everything officer, which was I, I wanted to do it all. I was like, oh, and I can do this. I can do that. I can I can plug in and I can fit into every single aspect of it. And it took time for me to really learn how to delegate and how to trust as a leader to say, hey, you know what? It doesn't have to be the way I would want it to be done, but if you get it done, that's that's great. If you can bring your own creativity to the process, that's only going to make us more effective. It's only going to make us more efficient. We're only going to become and be able to make an impact that much, that much stronger, um, by being able to learn how to kind of get out of my own way, um, how to be able to delegate. And so I think that one of the things that was also tough was that, you know, I had to learn how to compartmentalize a little bit because, you know, I, there would be times where I was having a really rough week in science and I, you know, was like, Oh, nothing's working. I'm trying all these experiments, nothing's happening. But then as a result, I would would sometimes kind of allow it to get me a little dejected and say, oh, well, I'm terrible at this. So I can't even do this. and I I can't do anything on the nonprofit because everything is just not going right. Um, And I I learned how to be able to instead of having this like propagating effect, I kind of learned how to use them to almost buoy the other Um, where, you know, it's like, hey, research isn't going great. None of my experiments are working. Well, at least I know I can do this. I can send these emails, I can, I can coordinate, you know, with this, with this organization, we're gonna be able to make a positive impact. And then something about that allowed me to then be able to come back to science and say, you know what, it's not about just me understanding the science here, it's also, you know, again, reminding myself of that hard to help others through science. that allowed me to basically form those kind of connections and then say, you know what, it's okay if it doesn't work. It's okay if things aren't, if things aren't completely understanding, I'm doing something that nobody else has done before. I'm learning information that I'm creating knowledge, and I'm learning things that you know just haven't existed, and of course it's going to be hard. In the same way of hey, we're we're trying to do a nonprofit and run a nonprofit at you know 22, 23 year old, you know, but we're starting our careers. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, and to come with sometimes embrace the challenge and kind of take yourself out of it and to say the impact is worth it. And so therefore, if it you know even if it's not immediate, it's still going to be worth it at the end. It's still going to be worth putting in that effort. Um, but yeah, I think that it was it was absolutely something where. Um, it kind of gets to really the heart of well, a really a tenet of my life is that service begets success. Um, that when you're looking for making that positive impact, when we're talking about climbing and we're talking about this mountaintop and whatever success um, kind of you know, is defined for each individual person. To me, service is what is at the core of that for me is how do you be able to help others be able to achieve that for themselves as well? It means nothing for me to get to the top of my mountaintop. And I look back and everybody else is still struggling at base camp. I have to be able to bring others alongside of me. I have to be able to share you know, tips and tricks, things that I've learned, experiences that I've had, mistakes that I've made. So that way, if it can help somebody else be able to navigate that, it allows somebody to be able to skip over that particular section um, or to not make those mistakes. That's at the heart of success to me. I mean, it, it's a matter of being significant and it's a matter of being able to, to help others be able to achieve things because if we all take that mentality, if we all have that empathy for each other, that really allows us to be able to propagate and to pay it forward in ways that you know, we can't even imagine.
0: Wonderfully stated. One, those are some <laughs> incredible tenets. Uh, service begets success. Is that what you said? Yep. Service. Uh, I, that is one of my driving tenets as well. It, it really is. You really can't climb that mountaintop by yourself and not think about those around you because you truly will be alone at the top. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's one of the things that I love about this podcast in general is that it, it just it allows people to be able to see so much of the stories and the paths that, that everybody's able to take. And then to also kind of get to the to the meat of it, so to kind of really be able to dig deep and say, like, OK, what is actually happening here? What were the struggles? What were the mistakes? You know, what are the things that you had to overcome? I think these are the kind of things that you know are just directly in line with being able to, to create that exact same mentality. Um, and all of your listeners, so I'm excited, you know, to be able to to be part of that.
0: Thank you so much, that's incredibly complimentary, yeah, thank you, and so with that, I know we're, you know, we're on a high note here, I kind of (laughs) want to talk about, I kind of want to talk about uh, some of the ways in which your, your intersecting identities may have Mm. caused some challenges along the way, so can you talk to us a little bit about how being black as a researcher, especially at a national lab, how that has manifested?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's. I think that that's one of the things that I'm I'm consistently learning. Uh, even even in this current space, is that, um, you know, there's there's a lot of challenges that you end up having to overcome, uh, and even that even not necessarily overcome, but you're just kind of faced with. Um, I would say that you know there's it really speaks to the importance of, of advocacy, of allyship and of, of champions, um, to be able to, to have your back when you're in spaces where you look around and you're like, this is ridiculous um, that I'm having to deal with some of these situations. Um, it, you know, there's, I, have, I have plenty of stories of just, you know, it, it hasn't been all, all, all roses uh, getting, getting to this point here. Um, specifically, I think of one, one experience, uh, I think it was at a conference, um, actually, it was my very first conference um, uh, when I think it was like 2014 in Atlanta. And the long story short was, this was my very first conference, my very first conference talk that I was ever giving. And I, you know, I, it doesn't look like it now, but I actually have my hair grown out um, and everything. And I was, I, cause I was in that particular mindset, I was very much like, y'all gonna know I'm black. Y'all, you know, y'all gonna see every aspect of this when I get this talk. Um, and so I had my hair grown out, you know, and I was, remember I was really, really nervous. Um, you know, the night before my first talk, and my advisor, uh, he's Puerto Rican, and he was just like, "Hey, you're gonna, you're gonna do great. Let's go out. Let's relax. Let's de-stress." Um, and I was like, "I don't know. I thought like I should practice." And he was like, "No, nah, 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 let's go out to all these different receptions. Let me introduce you to people. Let me, you know, help kind of network." But so even then, he was trying to kind of be able to form these connections. And so, long story short, um, there's a older professor um, at an esteemed institution that uh, was pretty drunk and pretty racist and to the point where, you know, things were said to me, uh, I guess, cause he just felt like he needed to say that stuff in that moment. And I will never forget this moment of, you know, I'm, I'm here I am, you know, I think I'm 23 or 24 and I have a talk the next day and I'm like, yo, he, he's just gonna, I'm just not giving him the talk. Like just, this is just what's gonna happen, you know? Uh, And before I even got an opportunity to even respond, my advisor, my PhD advisor, who did not have tenure, you know, he was still like trying to establish himself, is in this guy's space, berating this guy, telling this guy, like, you do not talk to my student like that. You don't talk to anybody like that. How dare you do this, this, and this? Like, I mean, and you have to understand my advisor is nicest, nicest person, super, super friendly, super, super courteous. But to see him be willing to say, this is not acceptable of how you treat people. And especially, this is not what you say to a Black researcher. This is not what you do in this particular space. And I will not stand for it. I think to have that level of champion uh, of just having and to know at that point, you know, because in the moment, I'm sitting there going like, you can't get arrested because you got to keep the lights on for me to keep doing my work. Like, how do I get you out of the situation? But even then, just like that moment, and I think honestly, from that moment on, we've been incredibly tight because, and, I, and I've been incredibly blessed to have him as a, as a supporter, as a mentor, um, and as an advisor. Um, but in that moment, it just kind of showed me like, this is the level of, of allyship and this is the level of advocacy that's, na- that's needed um, to be able to protect, especially in those kinds of situations where, and, you know, right before he interjected, I felt alone because I'm in a space full of white faces. And, you know, nobody at the time was really saying or doing anything. It was just kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of ignore it. And it was like, no, that's not acceptable. And to have somebody be willing to take that step and take that action and say, that's not, that's not going to fly, not, not on my watch, um, I think has been, has been great. And I think that that's something that I've been pushing for, you know, even in my time at the National Lab, you know, there's instances and situations where, you know, we're pushing for different changes. We're for, Wanting to advocate for, you know, changing different policies and for updating different language, for us to be able to improve the pipelines that we have for underserved for Black and Brown kids to be able to have access to the national lab, um, and that's what we're looking for. And you know, where we cherish when we do find someone that is on that level um, and is willing to be able to say, you know, hey, I'm willing to go to back for this. I'm willing to be able to pull money to be able to give it directly to y'all to be able to support that. Um, Glenn Fox is, is a person at the lab that I can think of. He's, you know, who's who's absolutely been an advocate who's who's been able to say, no, I believe enough in this that I'm gonna, you know, put my money where my mouth is and I'm gonna show up in these spaces where you may not necessarily be there to be able to advocate on your behalf. And you know, more people like him, I think, are are absolutely necessary uh, for us to be able to you know, overcome those, those those barriers.
0: Powerful anecdotes. Um... And the sad thing is, I think we all have that one story that really sticks out in our mind. We can't forget it. Yeah. And fortunately, some of us had that person in the room that said, not on my watch. Um, I am a person that believes in not on my watch. Okay. Yeah. Um, I feel like the worst thing I could do is be successful in this position and watch someone else who looks like me, doesn't look like me, but is also struggling with the same things I'm struggling with and not help them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a disservice. It,
1: yeah, it's I mean to me it's it gets to just it's a duty. It's something that's not even it's not a question. I don't have to think about it. We shouldn't have to think about doing the right thing. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of character and saying that's that's not going to that's not going to happen and I can't let it happen. It's not even a question of should I let it happen or what am what do I risk losing if 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 I don't do anything, it's like no. This is just this is automatic. You know, it's a knee jerk response. Like, no, nah, this just doesn't work. Not gonna happen. Not not gonna let it happen.
0: So sorry. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Not sorry. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And so, thank you for being so candid. And you mentioned barriers and how we can go about reducing them. Um, you have a special intersecting identity of being a researcher and a philanthropist, and you're great at both. And so, from that perspective, what are some of the ways that we can actively reduce barriers for BIPOC participation and representation in research?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think that to me, you know, it's, and I, it depends on, you know, where I think there's something that everybody can be doing, whether you identify uh, as BIPOC or if you, you identify as an ally. Um, I think that there's things that you can absolutely be doing to be able to reduce those barriers. I think that for, for one, if you're kind of sitting at that intersection or wanting to, to do that kind of work and there's things that you do want to be able to do to make a positive impact. Um, my biggest thing is kind of just echoing back to when I was at my, you know, at the kitchen table, just get it done, just start, you know, begin in so many different ways, you know, to start with that passion and be able to turn it into action. And a lot of times it's just starting to do something and it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to look great all the time. Um, but it's really going to be something that you know is is you're going to look back and be grateful that you began doing something that you began you know really thinking hard about what are the ways that you can be able to to make that impact. <clears throat> I think that one of the things that is just necessary is that you know there's there's really a difference between being at the table and then effectively having a voice, um, and I think that there's got to be more opportunities that are created for. Uh, you know, black and brown voices and spaces of science to be able to see the opportunities to change things and for them to be listened to, for them to be acted upon. You know, it's one of the things that we've been pushing at at Lawrence Livermore is that it's not just about recruitment, you know, and being able to get more black and brown faces in the door, but it's about retention. You know, I, I don't want to recruit people to join Lawrence Livermore if we're not going to be doing our work to be able to recruit it. And I'm sorry, to be able to retain the talent that we're able to bring in and as well as to be able to advance. I think that that's one of the things that's, you know, we, we can't just be satisfied with representation. You know, there's, there's gotta be some level of participation. There's gotta be some level of just, um, of being active um, that has to be there. And I, I'm, I'm glad to say that I work with a lot of great people at Lawrence Livermore that are pushing on that front. But across the board, um, we have to be able to continue to push on that so that way when we do show up in spaces, we're not feeling isolated, we're not feeling powerless, you know, we're not feeling as if we have no agency. We have to be able to say, no, here's all of the things that we're going to be able to do to make sure that you're you're valued and that you're going to feel that. Now you're going to see people that are going to step up and say, not on my watch. You're going to be able to see opportunities to say, hey, I want to showcase the work that you're doing and not just because you might be a black or brown person, but also because you know, you're doing phenomenal work, that you excel as a researcher or as a scientist. And that's what we want to showcase and that this is what scientists look like. This is what researchers look like, is that it's not kind of what it has been historically, but that it's going to be truly something that, um, of what it is and what, in a lot of ways, but it kind of always has been and just hasn't always necessarily been represented. Um, and I think that those are the things in terms of undermining the barriers, in terms of preventing all of that stuff from, from continuing to oppress people, is part of it is that you start to dismantle it. start to get more and more voices and more and more perspectives um, in spaces that have agency to be able to really say this is how we get rid of this barrier or here are the things that this barrier thrives off of and here's how we take all of the roots out so that way it basically can can no longer thrive Um, and we have to at the end of the day it takes courage it takes courage and empathy Um, it takes an ability to see each other um, and to say i need to be able to take myself out of my own shoes how can i help serve you especially being able to use intersectionality um, how do I show up for communities where I might have privilege and be able to then make, be an effective ally, just in those same ways that I would want others to be an ally for me in my space? Um, but then also, how do I have the courage? How do I sit there and say, you know what, this might, this might cost me some political points. This may not go great <laughs> if, if I say this right now. But at the end of the day, I have to, um, because I, I, I can't just allow things to go and to be said or to be done and to be used to oppress people continuously. Um, and and not be able to do something about
0: it. Wow, 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 wow. Um, What a treat. What a treat it has been to hear from you, Jeremy, especially from where you sit at a renowned national lab, someone that has uh, been successful in academia. Well, I'm sorry, successful in research and things (laughs) like that. and so I just at this time want to thank you for your time. Um, and we'll we'll end the podcast here. And once again, guys, if you if for the listeners that want to get in touch with Dr. Feaster about philanthropic activities, ways you can give back to the foundation, ways that you can be a mentor and donate your time and be a good ally, um, please be sure to visit the foundation website. And with that, thank you, Jeremy. And this has been Episode nine under the hood and we'll talk to you next time.